You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? We're back together again, again Valerie. We've had surprise. such a week together, haven't we? What we have. fun we've had. I've, I very much enjoyed the Australian Writers' Centre um, meet-up last week. It was fantastic to put actual people to the faces and names that I talked to on social media. So that was really great. And, of course, it's always good to spend quality time with you, Valerie. And my pets. And oh, your pets. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm still picking the cat hair off my pants. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that, what else have you been up to? Well, it was, um, yes, it was very great to see you and thank you. And, and Rex, Rocky and Rambo loved uh, hanging out with Auntie Al. Auntie Al, Auntie A.L., thanks very yeah, much. Yes, sorry, um, A.L. Yes, well, um, look, it was a big week for me. So apart from the Writers' Centre meetup and the um, obviously the Storyology uh, talk that we did as well, I, I came home to the news that the Mapmaker Chronicles had been named by bookworld.com.au as one of the best books of 2014. Yay! I know, that's <laughs> a cute parade. Yes. Um, so that kind of, you know, really livened up my train trip. That was good. Like the best books as of I all know, books. As in the top 10 of all books. That's amazing. I know. Like I was really very, very excited and I may have, there may have been some random hallway dancing. Well, going. I think I should redo the intro. I'm, I'm going to actually say um, welcome to episode 42 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with best-selling author A.L. <laughs> Tate. How about that? Uh, that sounds all right to me. We'll wait and see. But um, in, in other news, I'm also I'm back to earth with a thump this week because I'm currently um, I've just received the proofread copy of the Mapmaker Chronicles: Prisoner of the Black Hawk, which of course is book two, mm. which is due out next April. And there's nothing quite to, to bring you back to earth quite like, okay, now correct your work. <laughs> This is so exciting. It's kind of like the birth of, you know, there's Star Wars and then there's oh. Empire Strikes Back and then there's Return of the Jedi and then you're going to go back and do a prequel. I can't wait. And I'm going to come up with someone who's got a bagel hairdo just like yes. Slayer. <laughs> yes. And can you like, um, you know, maybe in some of your future books include like some of my pets as the characters, Rex, oh, Rocky and Rambo? What? Nothing would make me happier. <laughs> and as I'm writing them, all I will see is like fluffy cats and yes. little dogs. It'll be hilarious. Yes. But anyway, enough about that. Let's talk about you. What have you done this week, Valerie? I uh, did not get news that I was on a best-selling list. <laughs> I went for the first time ever and got shellac on my and on my nails and my toenails. Shellac. Yeah, I've never had shellac. Isn't before? that what they used to like do? cars 
Why don't they shellac those? Well, you can shellac anything. You can shellac furniture, I suppose, but it's basically really nice nails and toes. It's gorgeous. Right. And how long does it last, Valerie? I don't know, but all my friends are telling me that it lasts like, you know, three weeks to a month, sometimes even longer, which is very appealing to me because whenever I've had a mani in the past, within two hours I'm already chipping it because of the um, strength. Because of the way you type. My keyboard, yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I Honestly, I was watching you in action the other day and just going, you must have to replace your keyboards at least twice a year. <laughs> I don't necessarily have to replace the keyboards, but all the letters rub off. <laughs> so when somebody comes to use my keyboard, they just go, what the? <laughs> and now you've got glamorous shellac fingers on your keyboard. Yes. All right, we better talk about writing. We've talked okay. about nails. We've done all the stuff. Tell me, what have you found to tell me about writing this week? I came across an interesting link on the ABC about how authors are selling books on YouTube. Now, of course, that's referring to book trailers. And, you know, I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm in two minds about book trailers because last night, for example, I was tooling around on Facebook and I saw the trailer for Terminator Genesis. <laughs> you know, right. it's one of, it's the new Terminator movie. <laughs> right. And, um, so it's uh, a movie, not a book. It's a movie. That's right. right. Okay. And I was scrolling down and it was, I don't even remember the number, but it was a number even beyond my comprehension of the number of views and the number of comments. The comments alone were like 50,000 comments or something. And this was only three hours after the trailer had been released. Goodness me. And so, and the number of views was some insane number, millions in millions. And of course, I've never seen a book trailer that has garnered that that kind of those kind of figures. And look, what are your thoughts on? I have some thoughts on book trailers, but you tell me what your thoughts are. Well, to be honest with you, I don't have a lot of I, I don't have a lot of thoughts on book trailers because I don't watch them. And I mm. guess that probably I mean, pretty much categorically gives you the response right there, isn't it? Because I just I don't think I've ever actually watched a book trailer in my life. Right? Have I? I don't know. Oh no, I did watch Tristan Banks's one. Yes. Yeah, well, I think we did a little feature about those on the Writer Centre blog. Yes. And yes. So no, here's I the did, thing. This is and they were good. Point. Now that I think about it, they were good. They were good, but Tristan has a filmmaking background. He's not only an actor, he's a filmmaker. Yeah, But the vast yeah. majority of authors are not, and they don't necessarily have that kind of the, the skill um, to, to do what it takes to really make a successful book trailer. I think if you're going to make a book trailer, I've seen quite a few because I'm quite curious about them, and you're right, Tristan's was good. Um, but I've seen quite a few and they're literally just made together on iMovie with stock shots and some scary music or whatever the genre is and they just don't have the polish, obviously, as something like Terminator Genesis. But it, it's kind of like that's people don't necessarily make that distinction. People don't go, oh, that's a book trailer so I'm going to give it some leeway. These days, consumers are consumers and if uh, there are trailers that are out there that are pretty mind-blowing, then if your trailer is way down on the other end of the spectrum, sure, your friends and family are going to like it, but it may actually not do you very – may not be a good idea for you to put it out there if you want to reach a wider audience, unless it's really Are they expensive to make or are they relatively – 
Well, I think it depends. It depends. If you're just doing it on iMovie iMovie with stock photos, it's very cheap. (laughs) But, of course, Terminator Genesis probably cost billions of dollars to make. Yeah. (laughs) You get what you pay for. Oh, all right then. Okay, fine. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yes, I guess you have to feel pretty strongly about the medium if you – to do it. And have expertise in the medium, Mm. I feel anyway. Or get help, yes. That's right. So – I just wanted to to move on to something else and make sure that everyone is aware that the Griffith Review has uh, the Novella Project 3 (laughs) competition. So submissions are now open for Griffith Griffith Review's The Novella Project 3 competition and winning novellas will share in a $25,000 prize pool and be published in the Griffith Review, of course. So obviously this is the third time that this has been happening and um, it's a great opportunity for people to submit their novellas. So for, for people who aren't familiar with novellas, they're short novels. <laughs> and submissions close 29th May 2015, but they are limited to Australia and New Zealand authors and they need okay. to be original works of fiction. Okay. So, yes. so work, we'll, works between ten and twenty five thousand words are preferable, yes. and the maximum is thirty five thousand words. That's right. So, mm. get going because you know you can write that between now and the end of May. Go nuts! Yes, right. Go crazy. <laughs> Go crazy. <laughs> the other thing, the other another link. It wasn't really directly uh, related to writing, but I came across an interesting link about. Um, it was from a website called Psych Central, as in right. psychology, and it was saying that prolonged sitting at work or while you're writing impacts anxiety and depression. Now, I thought this was interesting because as writers, we do a lot of sitting, you and I, mm, and one thing I'm noticing uh, amongst my writerly friends is that some of them are getting stand-up desks mm-hmm. or they're getting sit-stand desks, which are the ones where you press a button and your desk goes boop and goes up (laughs) and boop and goes down. Do you like side effects? You could probably just make a book trailer by yourself and put your own sound effects in there, yeah? Yeah, it would be cheap. Um, So, uh, yeah, have you noticed that? A a lot more people are getting this sort of thing. And somebody, uh, a, a couple of people I know, are thinking of getting one of those treadmill desks. Wow. Where you, um, it's it's a, very, a purpose-built uh, desk that is on a treadmill, which can go up to six kilometers an hour, and so it, you can't run on it. And mm. um, yeah, well, unless okay. you run really slow, yeah. Yes, no, I do know uh, more people are getting those kinds of things. I I sort of got went about this my own way because I realised that I was sitting too much, even you know working from home and stuff. So the first thing I did was get a Fitbit. Which oh. means, um, which counts the number of steps I do every day. So I've got to do a minimum of ten thousand, and you kind of you have to get up regularly to do that. Do you make and it? Do you get to ten thousand? Always, always. Really? Yeah, mostly up to fifteen thousand. Oh well, God. the second thing I did was I got a dog, didn't I? Oh. Now I suggest every writer should have a procrasty puppy because you have to walk the puppy twice a day, and you know it. It just means that you're out and about. And like one of my main things has always been that. Um, I do like active meditation. Like a lot of my writing is done in my head mm-hmm. and a lot of it is done while I'm walking. So for me, you know, it's it's a natural thing. But I'm also in the position where I can get up anytime I want and go for a stroll if I need to, mm-hmm. whereas I know a lot of people are not necessarily um, able to do that. But yes. um, 
it makes a big difference. Like getting out into the sunshine for 10 minutes makes a massive difference to how you view the rest of your day. So I can totally see why, you know, sitting around all day. Because I don't know if it's just the sitting so much as the fact that you're, you know, you're not in the natural light, generally speaking, when you're at work and and you, you're sort of like doing the same thing over and over again and that does get depressing. Mm. I get depressed by that. Mm. So, yeah, so I suggest a Fitbit and a puppy works Well, I have to say I have a dog but he walks about... 10 yes, metres well, every hour. Well, he's very small and very old, whereas <laughs> Procrasty Puppy is a border collie and uh, he's six months old and he is raring to go yes. at the drop of a hat. So, you know, we, we cover some to let some territory, let me tell you. And there's obviously uh, increasing demand because next year I just noticed that IKEA has introduced into their catalogue uh, a stand-up desk for $69. So $69? Yeah, $69. And um, so, but the problem is with that though, not everyone's the same height. <laughs> so I don't know how that's going to work. Oh, you know, well, ha- well, surely it'll have to be, you know, adjustable. Well, not for $69, I don't think. We'll, well check it out. I, I was going to say, I don't think we can comment on that until we've seen it, Valerie. Yes, all right, fair enough. Mm, okay. So another link that we've got this week is uh, The Art of Social Media for Writers. And um, that's just that's an interesting uh, link that we've got on uh, from um, the future of ink, and it goes through different kinds of platforms and what you should do if you want to uh, build an online presence. And so it goes through Goodreads, Twitter, Facebook. Pinterest, Instagram, Google Plus, and so on. And we won't go into too much detail there except to put the link in the show notes because I know we've also got an interesting book coming up um, in our writing craft book that will probably expand on this. Yes? Yes, it will. Absolutely. Yes, we do. In the meantime, though, I want to talk about a little infographic that I saw this week on Publishers Weekly. Dot com and um, it caught my attention because it's called What Kids Want to Read. So Ooh. I was like, okay, let's get over and have a quick look at that. It was very good. So it's basically come from um, a new the, the fifth edition of Scholastic's Kids and Family Reading Report. So it's a US report about kids and families reading together, obviously. National survey of children ages 6 to 17 and their parents. And they were asked about everything from their reading habits at home to their favourite genres and Mm. the full report is going to be released next month but they've done this little infographic about what kids want in books. What do they want? Well, 70% of them want books that make them laugh. Oh. All right, so if you can come up with okay. something funny. Um, and generally speaking, if you follow the Andy Griffith School of Laughing, that involves fo- farts and bums and <laughs> all other manner. I mean, honestly, my seven-year-old boy thinks that Andy Griffiths is the funniest person in the known universe. Yes. So, yeah, so there's, he's on a complete winner there. So they want, um, they also want, uh, 54% want books that let them use their imagination, mm. um, 43% um wish want books that have characters that they wish they could be like because the characters are smart or strong or brave so they want a character that that they can identify as kind of a better version of themselves um 41 percent like them to have a mystery or a problem to solve which i have to say was always my favorite kind of book when i was a kid but 73 percent of kids aged 6 to 17 say that they would read more if they could find more books that they liked. So I think that, 
I know. So I think that that is a challenge for every person who's writing kids' fiction. You just got to write books that kids like. I mean, come on, people. I know it's hilarious, isn't it? But um, yeah, so it's worth having a little look at that if you're interested in in kids fiction or writing that sort of stuff because it's um, it certainly lays it out for you very very short. Yeah. And sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll put that link in the show notes. Oh, and just and just one other thing on that too, just linking beautifully on from that mm. is. Um, J.K. Rowling has is giving her fans a present for Christmas, and I know about this because my boys are members of her Pottermore club. She has Pottermore.com, and you can um, you can sign up, and you get all sorts of like you get updates and emails and all sorts going on. But um, she is releasing twelve new short stories, Harry Potter short stories, one every day from the twelfth of December to the twenty fourth of December, and I can tell you that the excitement level in this house is high. Wow. Yes, it's very, very exciting. So from 1 p.m. on Friday, December the 12th, which would be UK time, I'm assuming, um, we will be getting a new Harry Potter short story every day. Wow. (gasps) So excited. Know what your kids will be doing between now and Christmas then. And me. (laughs) And you. And And me. Of course. Exactly. All right. So, um, yeah. So, oh, and um, so I've got the book this week because I've read a book this week. We're very excited by the fact that I have actually managed to read a whole book this week. (laughs) Um, See, train time. I should come to Sydney more often because there I am on the train. Did you read it on the Kindle or the printer? I got got the, I've got the iPad and I've got the Kindle app on my iPad. So I read it on that. And, um, so um, the book is called Create Your Writer Platform, The Key to Building an Audience, Selling More Books and Finding Success as an Author. Mm. And it's a bit of a whopper for a for an ebook. It's about 180 pages. Mm. Um, and I have to say that it's actually, it's very comprehensive. I was actually pretty impressed by it. Um, there's a lot of information in there. Obviously, like if you've been doing this kind of stuff for a while, some of it was was I knew already, um, but I, I did pick up a few new things to try, which I was really quite excited about. So who's it and, by again? Oh, sorry. Did I tell you that? I didn't tell you that. It's by Chuck Sambuccino, who actually runs the blog for writersdigest.com. Oh, okay. Um, so, and he also has a couple of books out about finding literary agents and all sorts of things. He's got quite the suite of, of products. Um, but... The best thing about this book and the thing I found the most useful is that he has interviewed all the way through a range of literary agents about how about their thoughts on author platform. So with each chapter and each point that he makes, he asks people in the industry whether they Google your name, what do they expect to find, what needs to be on your author website, mm. you know, do you have to have 20,000 Twitter followers or, you know, will 5,000 do? Um, all the way through, he has gone through. He talks about the difference between a non-fiction platform and a fiction platform, which is something that I know a lot of fiction authors struggle with. He talks about what you should blog about, what you shouldn't. Um, very comprehensive book. I, I really recommend it. I thought it was very helpful. I'm definitely going to read that. And yeah, I have, have a, to say yeah. it wins the, the it wins the mantle of the longest title in history. It is Cre- long. Create your writer platform, the key to building an audience, selling more books and finding success as an author. <laughs> I know. Can you see why I forgot to tell you who it was by? <laughs> by the time I got all that out, I'd completely run out of steam. But anyway, so that's my, my writing craft slash marketing book for the week. Thank you. Well, in the world of blogs, uh, I 
thought that I would mention that I was actually interviewed by the ABC this week. It was a pre-record, so it's going to appear over the summer at some point. And we chatted for about 15 minutes on the the blogosphere, really. And um, what we talked about was, you know, pretty wide-ranging. But I think that what I was a little bit surprised by was the incredulity of um, uh, the, the, the response, the the incredulous response, let me get that right, (laughs) from the interviewer on um, some of the things that I mentioned because I think that she was quite surprised that blogs had taken such a foothold in uh, popular culture but just in society generally but also the success that some bloggers have. So it was, yeah, it was interesting, you know. she, She was really surprised to know that there are agents for bloggers and, of course, there have been agents um, and and also advertising networks for bloggers for some years now. Um, and uh, I think that, I guess, it, for you and I, we're both so immersed in the world of blogging, it can sometimes be easy to forget that there are some people who have no idea about the world of blogging. Yes, that is the thing, I think, too. We, we do get so caught up in it and there's so much sort of, um, particularly if you're online a lot, and... and there are people that are huge online that you would mention to people in the school playground and they've never heard of them. Yes. You know, they are massive bloggers with huge followings and, you know, you're sort of chatting away about them and they go, who? Yes. <laughs> you sort of think, oh, okay, that's right. There are, there, there are a lot of people out there that are not in the bloggersphere. Yes. We have to remember that. And the world of celebrity is being so fragmented, I think, these days because I was driving around in uh, Sydney the other day and on the side of a bus was this huge, massive bus-sized uh, picture of a fashion blogger. And I, and I knew who she was because, obviously, I'm in the world of blogging. However, just as a test, because I was going to lunch with some girlfriends, I asked them, whether they knew who she was. And they had never heard of her and couldn't believe that this person could be on the side of a, of, of a bus. You know? So it's, it's, it's a lot more fragmented than it used to be. That's exactly right. It's so true. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I had a great old chat with the lovely Sally Collings. Now, Sally used to be a publisher and editor in Sydney and then in Brisbane, but has since moved to Silicon Valley. And in Silicon Valley, she is still continuing in the in the industry with uh, you know editing. And what she does is a number of things. One is to help Australians who want to get book deals in the United States. But the other really interesting thing that she does is she does ghost writing and so we went into quite a bit of detail on the process of ghost writing um she's she's uh ghost written for a number of people including antonia kidman and shane jacobson the comedian she also wrote sophie delizio's story uh so yeah let's have a chat to sally collings so thanks for joining us today sally that's a pleasure it's great to speak with you now, you are talking to us all the way from Palo Alto. Um, just tell us, what brought you to Palo Alto and, and, and what do you currently do? Okay, so Palo Alto, I don't know if everyone knows, but it's, it's like the, the heart of Silicon Valley here in California. Um, and my husband is working on a, a tech-based startup business. Um, and so Silicon Valley just seems to be, the, it's a little bit like the, the gold rush here. Everyone that has any 
idea that has anything to do with technology is is here trying to make a buck or 10 million of them. Um, so that was, <laughs> that's kind of what brought us here. Um, and I was keen to be here too because mostly what I'm doing at the moment is ghostwriting. So I'm working with people on books and America is a huge, huge market to do that in. Wow. So you've ghostwritten a number of books now. Um, first, just in case some listeners aren't sure, now because I, I know you do ghostwriting and you do co-writing, right? Yeah, they're, they're kind of slippery terms. So Yeah, can you def- kind of define them for us? Sure. So ghostwriting typically is a very invisible process, uh, which I guess is why it's got that name, uh, where a, per- a, a writer... Uh, creates a manuscript on behalf of another person. So typically it would be working for someone like a celebrity or a business person, a politician, someone who is high profile uh, and therefore people want to read their story, but they don't necessarily have the time or the expertise uh, or the know-how to write it themselves. So a ghostwriter comes in as kind of a writer for hire and works with that person. Usually it involves interviewing them or uh, looking at material they've written in the past, like speeches or checking out videos of their presentations and just getting inside their skin. So it's a little bit like being an actor. You have to really think your way into that person's mind and write their their book in the way that they would write it if they had the, the, the time or the capacity. Mm. But what's co-writing then? Okay, so there's a kind of grey area between the two. A lot of people talk about deep ghostwriting, which is where you're, the ghostwriter is completely invisible. Uh, there's no credit. There's no mention of them. Uh, to all intents and purposes, the name on the cover is the celebrity or whoever, and there's no one else involved. Sometimes a ghostwriter might be credited, sometimes on the inside pages or in the acknowledgements. Uh, Sometimes the same job might be done by someone who's actually credited on the cover as a a co-writer. So you often see, see books that will say something like, you know, written by X with Y. And that would be a co-writing situation, but inside the industry, it's generally acknowledged that in a situation like that, the person whose name is with, the second named person, is most likely the person who did the heavy lifting of actually most of the writing. And why would sometimes people want to have the co-written credit and sometimes not? Is there a case of, you know, if you don't get the credit, you might get paid more or or, or how, how does that work? Yeah, look, there's a lot of considerations there. And and you're right, sometimes if, for example, if I agree to do a deep ghost with no credit, um, then I would expect to be paid a little more in consideration of the fact that I'm not getting any any of the sort of marketing benefit of having my name on the cover. Sometimes it's down to the publisher too. So they might feel that a book will sit better with its readers if there's just one name on the cover. Sometimes it seems that it's a distraction to have an additional name. But other times, if especially if the ghostwriter has a profile or is a well-known writer, uh, there might be a perceived benefit in having their name on the cover. So it just varies from case to case. Sometimes it's down to the author that they just don't want 
the perception that they weren't able to or didn't write it themselves. They feel it's an integrity issue. So there's lots of, it might be down to the author, it might be down to the ghostwriter, it might be the publisher's decision. Um, and sometimes there's a bit of wrangling and wrestling to find the best decision that suits all of the parties. Mm. And so for you as a ghostwriter slash co-writer, what's your preference? Do you want to be invisible? You know, do you like that or do you want to have a credit on the cover? Look, I don't necessarily insist on a, a cover credit. You know, it's nice to have, but because my background's in publishing, I worked as a publisher and editor for many years. I understand the commercial considerations that might mean that it, it makes more sense for me not to be on the cover. So, for example, I've just started working with a, a professor at Stanford who has a fairly per, a personal story to tell. It's going to make more sense, I think, for it to be purely her name on the cover. Um, but, you know, I hope and expect to get a credit inside because that's nice for my portfolio. Um, but I don't think that I need to be front and centre up there with her. Mm-mm. And so you've written or you, you've, you know, ghostwritten slash co-written um, some pr- uh, books with some pretty famous people, uh, the comedian Shane Jacobson, uh, his memoir, The Long Road to Overnight Success, and also Antonia Kidman's book, The Simple Things. What are some of the biggest challenges when it comes to ghostwriting, especially with some big names? I think I've been really fortunate to work with just some great people. You know, I think sometimes when you work with celebrities or high-powered business people, there's a lot of ego on the line and it's hard to kind of find the right relationship between them having respect for the fact that you've got a job to do as the writer and the writer having respect for the fact that it's that person's book really at the end of the day. So I've been lucky in that. I think most of the most ghostwriting or co-writing jobs that I take on always start with a little bit of a negotiation, a bit of a dance to try and work out, so how are we going to work together? How are we going to do this? So in the case of Shane Jacobson, uh, he's, he's the most eloquent, funny person, the, the best storyteller I've ever met. So it very quickly became evident that he's so good at, at saying saying stuff and, and storifying his life, you might say. Um, and so all I had to do, all I had to do was to to kind of be the, the one to listen and to turn that into some written form. So he, he I asked questions, he talked, I turned it into a, a manuscript. You know, it was fairly straightforward. With Antonia, we had a very different process because she's a, a journalist in her own right. And so we had to find a way where we could both contribute to the writing um, in a in an equal but different way. So we kind of split it up in writing that book, The Simple Things, um, which is kind of about, you know, the stripping back and getting back to the essentials in your family life. Uh, she would kick off each chapter and write kind of like a short essay uh, about why it's important to do certain things like, you know, reducing screen time and uh, recycling and doing those those good green eco things that we all know we should do but a lot of us don't. And then I'd go into the details. So how do you do that when you're busy and you've got a family? So that was how we did that. So I think one of the challenges is just working out how do we, how do we cut this cake? Mm. So you, you, as you say, you need to get into the skin 
of the the, the, the person. Um, how do you capture someone's voice, especially a bloke, you know, like Shane Jacobson or whatever? Do you have a particular technique or process that you can walk us through? It's a little bit intuitive. I guess what I try to do is uh, listen to them as much as possible so that if they have done presentations, so in Shane's case, you know, I watched every movie he's made. Um, I made sure to, he does a lot of public speaking as well. I made sure to to watch videos of him speaking. And I just, I I take notes on their word use and I, I think about their how they put a sentence together, uh, you know, are they staccato? Do they put things together in a short way? Uh, do they talk at an emotional level or is it more uh, physical at a different level? Um, and I guess often it's a matter of just trying it and see what, what happens. So usually I would start off by putting together something brief, not even a chapter, and just saying, look, here's, here's how I think that your written voice should sound. What do you think? And usually there's quite a bit of toing and froing because there's quite a big step moving from someone's spoken voice to their written voice. Um, and so we've got to find that together. So it sounds like you actually try and master the voice first before you extract all the information for the whole book. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's very much trying to just nail, you know, who's turning up here? Is it going to be, in the case of Shane, is it Shane the Joker? Is it Shane the the philosopher? Is it a little bit of both? Who's who's turning up here? Um, And so that's one of the considerations. And then the other one is, so what story are we telling here? Because just about everyone's got more than one story to tell. What's the story we want to tell here? And so if it is a, let's say you've mastered the voice or you've, you think you've captured the voice and now it's time to extract the information. So obviously there's different types of books. There's, you know, business books, as you've said, there's memoirs. If it's a memoir, let's say, we'll take that one first. Do you have a framework or a process? Like do you start from kindergarten, start from childhood and, you know, do it in a sequential way or how do you actually download everything, you know, from the person after, of course, you've done your own research, like watch all their movies or watch them speak and that sort of thing. Mm. Look, I do some fairly fundamental things. Uh, I usually put together a timeline, um, which I might do by talk, talking through that person's life. It can be incredibly time-consuming, but just plotting out. So what are the main turning points, the things that were significant that made a difference, the phases and episodes that we need to, to consider in this person's life, which doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the structure for the book, but it's a, a fact-finding mission for me to know that I, here's, here's what is on the table. So a timeline is one of the first things. A cast of characters is another thing I do of just talking through. So who's important in your life? Who was, imp- who was important in school, in your family, in your young adult life, once you got married, when you lived for the, in Vietnam for that year? You know, who, who mattered at that time in your life? And just I try to put together that cast of characters to get that sense of who's important in this picture. And, again, some of them might n- never appear in the, in the final manuscript but it just helps me to paint that picture of, of the what their life is like. And on a practical level, how do you record that? You know, every writer is different and, you know, some people would just write it in a Word document. Other mm. people would do you know, index cards and, and other people would plot the timeline on a wall. What do you do? 
I'll tell you what I really want to do. I want to use a software <laughs> software called Scrivener, which is oh messy. yes, love Scrivener. You know that one? Yeah, absolutely. Look. In fact, I met with the developer yesterday. <laughs> oh, how wonderful! Love Scrivener. It's fantastic um, platform. Yeah, so that would be an ideal tool for me. I've got halfway through the the kind of tutorial of working out how to use it, so I'm determined to use it for my the, the, the next project that I'm just starting now. Um, but what I actually actually do at the moment is I have little folders of information. So I'll have a folder of background material and a folder of of you know timelines and a, so they're all word documents and sometimes Excel spreadsheets uh, just stored in as logical a way. As I as I can figure, uh, I usually also have an everything document, which is literally pa- I paste into this one document everything I have, so that when I'm thinking to myself, where was that little piece of information about their you know best best friend when they're in kindergarten, I can search that one document and find it. It's not perfect, so I think Scrivener is the way forward. Yeah, definitely, especially if you're doing that with your everything document. Um, it'll be a lot easier for you to use Scrivener. Um, but let's – so that's memoir. But let's say it's a, a business book, you know. it's So, of course, there are elements in memoir, you know, especially an entrepreneur discusses their journey. But essentially, it's a business book. So it's – and when you write a business book, you often need to – download a lot of information that can be like learning a whole new craft you know a whole new um you you have to you have to learn about finance all of a sudden or about um technology or whatever whatever the topic is is do you actually bother to learn it or do you convey information that is given to you by the person Mm. uh Look, I guess the first thing I'd say is I tend not to do very dense and high-level business books. One of the things about America is that it's incredibly niche and segmented and there are a lot of people that do that kind of thing far better than I do. But the business books that I have written tend to be a little bit more narrative-driven. I've just completed one project on family businesses, so multi-generational family businesses, and something I had to do there was to really get my head around, you know, what does it mean to be a multi-generational business? What are the uh, risks? Uh, what what causes them to fail? So I, I had the opportunity to work with uh, a think tank were the advisors on the book. And so I literally had to say to them, you need to give me the family business 101, you know, the dummies crash course on family enterprise um, and so they did that. They came, they came up with a PowerPoint presentation and they just did a, a video conference for two hours and told me everything that I needed to know at a top level about fa- multi-generational family businesses. So, yeah, I did feel like I needed to really bone up on that subject area. I'm always reluctant to simply, especially when you're going into the depth and complexity at a book level, uh, to lean completely on information that the subject is giving to me. I, I try to have as, as much of a comprehension as I can. And I guess having worked in publishing, you know, as a publishing, as an editor working in book publishing, you have to turn your brain to lots of different subjects. And so I guess that's one of the things, one of the attributes I have is the ability to fairly quickly get a grasp of new subjects. And it's one of the things I love about what I do too. Mm. Um, I know that this 
question is probably going to make you say, how long is a piece of string? But I get asked it all the time, so I'm going to turn it on to you. And that is, people often ask me, how long is the process going to take? Like, you know, from from starting to talk to the subject to having at least a first draft, how long is that process going to take? Yeah, look, it is a little bit of a string length kind of a <laughs> question. Yes. Um, and again, I guess there are a few factors at play. Sometimes I will be brought in as ghostwriter by a publisher who wants a book produced very quickly for a particular release date. Um, and so they will say to me, you have four months to write this, can you do it? Um, and after I've fallen off my chair and gotten up again, I'll say yes or no. <laughs> but if someone says to me, how long will it take you to write this book? Um, I certainly won't say four, four months because a typical book takes me around six months, seven, eight months to write. But it depends on a lot of things. You know, sometimes when you're working with a celebrity or a uh, an entrepreneur or a business person, they're just not a, they're terribly available. They might be away traveling, filming, recording for a week or two or three at a time. And so I might be in a point where I need their approval on some chapters or I need more information from them, I need an interview, and I can't move forward without them. So, you know, it's always dependent on, on them actually making themselves available. And, and these days I, I kind of write that into my agreements that I will make certain dates so long as they make themselves available. But, you know, a t- typical time frame would be about six to seven months for me. And during that period, let's say um, whether, well, I guess whether it's a memoir or not, but uh, how much time would you spend with a subject? doesn't have to be in person, of course. It might be interviewing on the phone, whatever. But how much interviewing time is there for, for that download? Look, I would say a fair uh, number on that would be around about 50 hours of interview um, would be probably... Yeah, that would probably be a fair figure. And that might be 30 hours with the subject uh, together with a dozen interviews with the people around them, family, friends, colleagues, whatever it might be. So um, in terms of actually recording and, and taking down interviews, about 50 hours worth of material as well as kind of conceptual time. So we might spend 10 hours together up front just working out what the story is, getting down the timeline, talking about the cast of, of characters, all of those, that kind of background brain dump kind of material up front. Mm. So are there, when people come to you to potentially, you know, work with you as a ghostwriter because they have a particular story to tell, um, are there some common misconceptions? Because, you know, I caught up with somebody yesterday and he wants to write his book and he was asking me about, you know, a, a ghostwriter. And one of the things that he was saying was, look, I just don't have the time. I just don't have the time. And I, and I said to him, well, you're deluded if you think that it's you, you, the, the, the ghostwriter is a mind reader. <laughs> you're still going need to invest a hell of a lot of time. So what are some of the misconceptions uh, similar to that, I suppose, that people have when they come to you? 
Yeah, look, I guess number one would be the idea that once they engage a ghostwriter, they can just, you know, leave the ghostwriter to it. Um, I guess the only exception would be is, you know, if you've written, I don't know, a series of speeches or a series of essays and you literally wanted the book to be a, a compilation, an edited compilation of those, well, something like that would probably take very little time from, from the subject. But other than that... Um, I guess, look, probably one of the biggest misconceptions is around um, money. A lot of people come to me and they say, look, you know, I've got, I have the most remarkable life story. People are always telling me I should write a book. Um, I know it's going to be a bestseller. Will you write it and we'll go halves on the profits? Um, Yes. Well, yes, quite. <laughs> I, I try not to laugh at the time too um, because, you know, as you know, most books, there is no profit. You know, it's a real, really high-risk uh, undertaking to write a book. So, you know, I guess I now have a, a phrase on my website. I, I say something like, you know, I, I uh, ride my bike on the road on weekends. That is my risk-taking activity. Your, bo- your book is your risk-taking activity. Um, so yeah, yes. I, I guess that's that's I, one I, of the I, things. I can one up you on that one <laughs> because um, we regularly get people who uh, will contact me um, and say, um, you know, exactly what you said. I've got a great story. I'd really like to write it. They know it's going to be a bestseller. And would one of your students like to ghost write it for me in exchange for the experience? Ah, yes. <laughs> but well, anyway. Look, yeah, look, it's a really good, in fact, it's a really good point because often people gasp a little when I say, well, no, I, I charge a fee. I'm a you know, writer for hire. I charge for my services and, and I tell them what I charge. And people sometimes do take, there's an intake of breath. And I, I just say, well, look, you know, there are people around who are desperate, desperately keen to get their first book up and running. And they may well do it for a very low fee, but I am not that person. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Um, so you've mentioned it, you've been a publisher. So you've been a, a non-fiction publisher at HarperCollins. When you were there, what sorts of books did you publish and what, you know, would you as a publisher, if you put your publisher's hat on, be looking for in a non-fiction book? Yeah, so I, when I was a publisher, I worked across a whole gamut of areas. It was everything from... Uh, sex and astrology through to political history, um, uh, yoga, uh, surfing memoirs, all sorts of just anything. No, I wouldn't say anything and everything. I mean, it was somewhat, somewhat focused, but not terribly cooking. It was, it was the works. Um, in terms of what I would look for, you know, when you get, when you're a publisher, you get thousands of submissions hitting your desk in the course of a year. And a lot of them are, are perfectly competent, very well thought out, very well structured. Some of them are dreadful and scrappy and verging on insane. But, <laughs> verging but, on no. insane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you get a certain like number of people. Like the aliens have descended on Earth and taken over. Yeah, yeah. I, I am the reincarnation of, of, you know, Genghis Khan and here is my story. So, you know, you do get some pretty crazy stuff. Um, but I guess the only way I could define 
in a total sense, what I was looking for is something that was so remarkable that it would make me jump off my chair and run into the office next door and say, oh, my God, you've got to read this. You're always looking for the thing that's going to just jolt you off your seat because you see so much that's pretty good. Yeah, that's fine. That's kind of interesting. I think I could probably sell that to someone. But, you know, it's it's most often that's not enough. You need that, oh, my gosh, this is just outstanding. And that might be the voice, the way it's written. It might be someone who really has that remarkable story and an incredible platform from which to tell it. You know, it might be someone who's had an amazing life story and they regularly speak to audiences of 500 people and they're just in a really good position to tell that story to people. And so can you give us some examples of books that jolted you out of your seat? Uh, yeah, let me think, let me think. And, well, and while you're thinking, how often mm. did you get jolted out of your seat? <laughs> yeah, not as often as I would like. Yes. Uh, look, I, what did I love? I don't know if it was a jolt out of your seat. I worked with Janet Janice Deneef on her book Fragrant Rice about her life in Bali and at the time there wasn't so much said or written about living in Bali and it was just the most gorgeous manuscript that took you somewhere else. So that was quite something. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, I worked with Chris O'Brien, uh, Professor Chris O'Brien, on his memoir, Never Say Die. He was a head and neck surgeon who uh, tragically got brain cancer himself. His manuscript, let me see, his manuscript didn't make me jump off my seat, but he himself is just the warmest, most fantastic personality. So, you know, telling a story about cancer is a really hard ask to get anyone to buy a book on that, but he is just such a compelling was because tragically passed away a few years ago just the most compelling warm individual um so it's a little bit like in the way that Arne lee um can write about his refugee experience and people want to hear it they want to kind of be part you know to, to be p- part of that story just because of him and his amazing personality so it's those kind of stories that there's just something about that person that you want to be you want to hear it from them. Now, I know I put you on the spot there. I might put you on the spot again and say, which of the books that you've, you know, written or co-written did you enjoy the most and why? Oh, look, I, I mentioned Shane. I've got to say it was so much fun working with Shane. You know, he he would always come up with the right anecdote. I mean, I could literally say to him, look, Shane, you mentioned that thing about when you – uh, the, the Volkswagen caught fire and sank in the creek. Could you please tell me about that? And he would just bang, just come out with that story in such a perfectly, perfectly paced and told way. It was just so much fun. And he was the warmest and most generous person to work with, you know, incredibly funny, uh, very, I guess, respectful of, of my time and what I was doing on that project because sometimes you do get people who uh, are fairly demanding, which is fair enough, but it's it's nice to feel like you're being recognised as, you know, a professional who's doing a job. Um, so, yeah, I, I would work with Shane again any time. And 
so you've been a publisher, but then you obviously transitioned into writing. Now, publishing is very different to writing. Mm. So it's an entirely different process. When and why did you decide to do that? Mm. So uh, I guess it was prompted by babies. Um, I, I had two children in quick succession. I had thought that I would return to working for a publishing company but I, I took maternity leave with no specific plans about what would be next um, I guess in one of those rather bizarre life change things both of my parents passed away very quickly after my first daughter was born and I just I guess I, I felt completely knocked askew um, so I shelved my plans to go back in into onto the career path and I decided to be at least for a time a freelance editor and writer so that was when I started I guess and I didn't think of it as ghostwriting at the time but I would be asked to work on projects that involved maybe interviewing someone to draw out their story more or writing just a little little bridging pieces to tie together chapters in a story and just bit by bit, I started to move into that area where I wasn't being the editor suggesting changes. I was actually being the person expected to write it. Uh, so it was kind of an incremental change, if you like. Um, and eventually I thought, you know, I think what I'm actually doing and what I'm loving doing is ghostwriting. Um, and then the big step, of course, was to uh write a whole a whole book because when you work in publishing people will often say to you when are you going to write a book of your own and I always used to joke and say well I don't have the attention span I couldn't possibly um, and eventually you know the opportunity came to, to write books and I just discovered that you know having worked in, within them and with them uh, it was a, a step quite a step or a leap to write them but I guess I had an aptitude for, for doing it. So you wrote Sophie's Journey, which is, you know, it's about a very high-profile subject. Can you tell us how that came about and what that experience was like? Well, yeah, so that project was really the one that tipped me over, you know, from editor to writer. Um, So I was invited to write that story by HarperCollins. So Sophie's parents had gone, to, had approached them and, and they'd been discussing, discussing a publishing deal. Um, and I think Sophie's parents, Ron and Carolyn, had thought that they might write the book themselves because essentially what they wanted to do was a book that would paint a picture of all of the people around Sophie. Um, and for anyone that doesn't remember, Sophie was a little girl who was, severely profoundly burnt in a in a fire um, and she survived only to just over a year later to be hit by a car and again be struggling for her life so her parents wanted a book about everyone who had helped to save her life not once but twice so the uh, ambulance driver police the medics the helicopter pilot the teachers therapists everyone um, and HarperCollins told them that, you know, this is quite a big ask. We think you need a writer on it. And so one day I got a call from HarperCollins to say, do you know of Sophie Delezio? Have you heard about her? Would you be interested in writing her story? Um, and I had heard of Sophie and I was very moved by her story. So um, I gathered together my courage and I said, yeah, I would, I'd love to do that. 
So that was really the first book that had my name on the cover that I've written from beginning to end. Um, so I, you know, interviewed probably 50, 60 people for that book. And uh, it's very much it's very much written in the as told to style. I tried to not kind of intervene, and I think that was one of the reasons I was asked to do it because I guess a, a, a journalist might take more of a grasp and bring their voice to it a little more. I guess what they wanted was someone to just bring those very diverse stories together. So that was what I did. So now in Palo Alto, you are ghostwriting, but I understand you also. Uh, consult and help people with their book proposals. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And often uh, they kind of come together because often when people approach me and say, I need a ghostwriter, can I engage you? If they're looking for a publisher, our first step is for me to work with them to write a book proposal. Um, And so that might involve writing a couple of sample chapters and writing up the content outline, chapter breakdown, thinking about the marketing and who's going to buy the book, what the competition is. So I put together all of that package, if you like, with with the person um, and go out and seek a publisher. Um, yeah. There's a lot um, readily available on, on, you know, how to write a book proposal in a sense, but what, what do you see when you're dealing with your clients as the most common mistakes people make when they're, they're preparing their book proposals? Uh, what a great question. I guess one thing I'd say on that is that I had to learn all over again how to do a, write a book proposal when I came to the US because they're vast documents here. They're, it's, you know, 10 to, 10 to well, maybe 15,000 words in total would be a typical book proposal. They're, they're it's, huge. Yeah, like a mini book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. So, yeah. The first time I saw one, I just, oh, my jaw dropped. I, I, I happened to have the book proposal well, that Tim Ferriss prepared for the four-hour work week. And um, I just looked at it and went, that's a freaking book. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, they It's insane. And in yeah. Australia, it's completely different. Yeah, so typically if, if I, because, you know, write, even at once you're a published author, you still need to pitch your ideas to get the next book up. So writing a proposal in Australia, I would typically write maybe six or eight pages, you know, it would be very skimpy in, in comparison. Um, but look, in terms of what mistakes people make, I, I often find that especially, and this is purely talking about non-fiction, it's a completely different kettle of fish from fiction, but the people focus purely on the book content itself and uh, often neglect to really think about the market, the marketing, their platform, the audience, you know, that bigger context. So in particular, you know, you, you might have someone with the, that remarkable life story, fantastic story to tell, great voice, great way of telling it, but they have to make it very clear that they are someone that people want to hear from, so that they are the Arne Lee or the Shane Jacobson, that they, they are, you know, they might not be famous or a celebrity at that level, but that they have a way of reaching people. They've thought about that, that they they know how to get this into people's hands because that is so much part of the package for a non-fiction writer. So that would be the, the, the mistake that I see people making is to neglect that area. 
Back on the American book proposals, if there are some listeners who were interested in, you know, writing a book proposal to an American publisher, what is it? What else is in it that's not in the Australian ones? Why is it fifteen or twenty thousand words? What what do they put in there that's that's in addition to what we're used to? Yeah, look, I, I suppose one of the big things, and this has happened since over the last five years, I guess, in Australia, the expectation that you'll have those sample chapters is is huge. So that that represents about. 7,000 words perhaps of material in its own right because typically if you're going to do sample chapters to go with your proposal, it needs to be about 10% of the finished length of the book. Um, But, look, I I would say that there's just more detail. So when it comes to writing uh, a chapter breakdown, for example, in Australia you might just write the chapter title and a sentence of what that chapter will be. In America it will probably be a couple of paragraphs, quite quite detailed, quite in-depth, just describing the material to be covered, the perspective, the point of view, some of the main points. It might even contain some quotes from the, from the chapter, so it's quite detailed. Um, and certainly the analysis of comparative and competing titles needs to be very detailed to stand up in the American market. So... Um, that might be you might list six or eight titles that are your main competitional comparisons and you'll need to write maybe a couple of hundred words on each just to describe why your book stands out or compares well to them. Uh, And, you know, the the market too, just really not just saying this is a book for uh, divorcees in their 40s, but breaking down what that demographic is, um, what what change there is, just being very detailed and numbers driven, um, using as much data as you can get to support your position that there's a need for this book. So tell us about how you structure your day. You do quite a diverse range of things. <laughs> so how do you compartmentalise or, or, or get into any kind of routine because you could be, you know, it, helping someone consulting on a book proposal, you could be ghostwriting, you could be interviewing somebody to download, you know, their life. What happens in your week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, a lot. Probably having kids helps because, you know, you've got the structure of, of you know, picking kids up from school and all of that kind of thing. Um, I, I try to have one big project at any one time. I've, I've found from bitter experience that trying to or being in the full flow of writing two books at a time is too hard because I, I get very, I guess, emotionally invested um, and mentally invested in the work I do. And so it's it's almost like I don't know trying to two time someone. You, you're trying to you know be their main person, be the main person to two people at once. It just doesn't work for me. So I tend to have one main project. So that might be a book proposal, writing chapters, or it might be a full full book. Um, and then I'll have a few couple of things ticking along at the same time because although I can't do two big things at once. Uh, I like to have a little bit of variety just to give my my brain a a break and to keep variety in the day. So, you know, typically I'd spend maybe four or five hours on that main project and then I'd I'd have a couple of things in my pocket to keep me interested at the end of the day. 
And so what's, what's, um, what does the future hold for you? What are some exciting projects that you're keen to get stuck into over the next, you know, year or so? Mm. So uh, one exciting thing I'm working on is uh, I have ju- I'm just about to launch a new service through my company, Red Hill Publishing, which I call Personal Memoirs. So it's for people who don't have a commercial story that is for a, a publisher, but it's for families and friends who want to catch the memories maybe of a parent or uh, a relative um, and put them together into a, a really gorgeous book. So especially right now with the holiday season coming up, I figured it would be good timing. So I'm launching, basically blending my perception of, of or you know, I, I have a feeling that a lot of people are like me. My When my parents passed away, they didn't tell a whole lot of stories. They didn't leave behind any written record of what their lives were all about. And I regret that. I regret not having that for my children and my grandchildren. So I figured that I could combine my ability to interview people and draw out those stories with my experience as a publisher and create, really bring that trade publishing expertise to create gorgeous memento books for individuals. So that's that's the big thing for 2015 is um, looking at delving into that and building that. Wonderful. We look forward to it. And we'll put the link um, to your website in the show notes as well. Um, But on that note, uh, that brings us to the end of our chat today. And I want to thank you for sharing your insights, particularly in, you know, you've got such a wealth of experience, not only as a publisher, but also in your ghostwriting um, career as well. And I've, I've certainly learned a lot just in our chat. So thank you so much for your time today, Sally. That's a pleasure. It's been great talking to you. So there you go, Sally Collings. Well, that's great. I mean, I've, I find it really fascinating. I think the world of ghostwriting is one of those that's very, very interesting to a lot of people. I know we certainly got asked a lot of questions about it um, at the Walkley Storyology conference the other day and specifically, you know, how to get the work and what to do. And um, one of the things I found really interesting about doing that sort of that talk, that Mm. workshop that we did, as well as the meetup, was that so many of our answers came down to the same so many questions came down to the same answer, which yes. was the whole networking thing. Yeah. And um, I think people were really surprised. It got to the point where they were like, oh, don't tell me. The answer's going to be networking. But um, I, I, people, I just don't think you can ever underestimate how important that business of actually making contacts, making friends and, and, you know, doing your best work every time so that the word of mouth is out there for you. You just can't underestimate it, can you? Uh, I truly believe it. I truly live by the mantra, and I know this sounds twee, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I remember saying it once in a room and someone groaned, and I was just like, well, that's nice of you. Actively groaned. (laughs) Actively groaned. Anyway, I truly believe your network is your net worth. Oh, there you go. That is a bit of a cliche. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Al. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You're going to have to come up with something better than that. I truly believe it because yeah. almost every major gig that I have got is a, has been as the result of networking. I'm sure that is the same yeah, same case is. for you, is it not? It is. No, it really is. Like you, I think some of the best jobs and the best work that comes away, it's always word of mouth because people 
want to know that they can trust you yeah. with whatever it is that they're, you know, giving you to do. Um, and the and you know it yourself. Like if you even if you're looking for anything, you ask around. It's like yeah. I need, you know, I need X. I need someone to clean my pool. Yeah. Have you got someone good? You know, it's it's always going to be that. And so you just, you know, it's a matter of you just can't underestimate the importance of making friends and always doing the best that you can on every single job, no matter how boring, no matter how whatever, because you just don't know where you just don't know where the recommendation is going to come from. And also, if you live in a remote area and you think that you know there are no writers' festivals or writers' groups or anything like that around you, there's a couple of things that I have to say to that. You don't need to live in this in the city for two for two reasons. Number one. There's social networking. So mm-hmm. you can make fantastically uh, comprehensive and and really deep connections through social media if you're authentic about it. Mm-hmm. But number two, if you do live in a remote area, make a point to go to key industry conferences, potentially like the Storyology one we just spoke at or particular yeah. writers' festivals that have a clear bent on writers as opposed to readers. Yeah. So make sure you, you, you just go to some of those. You only need to go to one or two and you and make sure you make those connections because then you can continue those connections online after that. It Never that's underestimate right. the power of a conference. No, that's right. And I just thought I'd mention for anyone who isn't familiar with Storyology, it's the conference, it's an annual conference put on by the Walkley Foundation and that is, of course, run by the Media Entertainments and uh, Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. And it's an industry conference where there, there is one particular program called Freelance Focus, which is just for freelance writers because some of the other days are a little bit more catered to journalists who are full-time. But uh, certainly the freelance program has expanded over the last couple of years as there are more freelancers uh, in the industry. So, um, yeah, you can check that out at storyology.org.au. We'll put the link in the show notes. But can you believe that we're right in the middle of the silly season, Al? Yes, I can. I, I absolutely can. Have you got because your Christmas tree up? Yes, the Christmas tree went up on the weekend. Much excitement. There were small people running around just like elves at my house. There were Santa hats. There was fighting over, you know, whose Christmas decoration went where. We did all that, all the good stuff. I can't find my Christmas tree. Oh, Valerie. It's Why? Some, well, it's inflatable. And um, so it squashes quite small and I don't know where I put it. Oh, no. Oh, dear. You might have to branch out and get yourself a new one this year, some other thing. Or you know what you should do? Check out Pinterest for, you know, great ideas of things that you can stick on the wall and, and all manner. I mean, oh, honestly, Christmas yeah. trees have come a long way and Pinterest is a world of Christmas inspiration. inspiration. Can, yes, well, I've got um, Santa sacks for all of the for all of the furry babies. Um, so we need to put them up very soon. There's, I know I only mentioned Rex, Rocky and Rambo, but there is also Dougal and Groucho and they'll be here for Christmas. So we've got, we get five Santa sacks and they, they all get chock full of stuff. They get very spoilt. Anyway, if you can you put can you put one up with a dot l dot on it and send send some you know fun stuff my way. Um, Speaking of gifts, we have a new review on iTunes this week. A little gift from the lovely Annabelle Smith, who is um, 
a fantastic author, and we've actually recently um, covered her new book, The Ark, which is an interactive book. It's a really interesting idea, um, an interactive novel which takes um, reading to a whole new dimension. And there's a great little interview with her on the Writer's Centre blog about, you know, how she came up with the idea and how it all works. It's very um, interesting read. If you're interested in the sort of the combination of the digital and the and the novel is um, is a great thing. But she's put a great little review up for us, which is lovely. And, um, oh, thanks, says, Annabelle. Yeah, thanks, Annabelle. Big shout-out to Annabelle. Um She's listened to every pod episode of the podcast since discovering it a couple of months ago and she finds it a great source of industry information relevant to mid-list writers like herself as much as beginners and um, she thinks we're very fun, Val, so that's always good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thanks so much for that, um, Annabelle, and, yeah, check out the interview with her on our blog because it's really uh, worth a read. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. We will. But I thought I'd mention that if you, uh, if listeners are thinking of a gift this Christmas, there's also the option of getting a gift voucher for a writing course from the Australian Writers' Centre. Yeah. So you can just go to our website and look for gift vouchers. And there are a lot of people who are giving their mothers or, you know, their, their spouses gift vouchers. And in many cases, this has been the prod that this person has needed to launch their writing career. So... Uh, yeah, if you're stuck for ideas or you want to give something that's really meaningful to somebody who loves writing, gift vouchers at the Australian Writers' Centre. There you go. There you go, which brings us now to the end of our podcast. If you have a question, please do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au or you can find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. Now, Alison, where do we find you online? You will find me at alisontate.com, but you most often find me on my Facebook page. So I have a look there. I am Alison Tate. I think I'm Alison Tate writer on my Facebook page. So have a look there because I do, I love a bit of Facebook because I get to have extended conversations and you know how much I love an extended conversation. <laughs> very, very fond of an extended conversation. Sometimes she can't shut up. Uh, clearly, <laughs> like right now. <laughs> You'll find me at Valerie Koo and uh, at obviously at the right. WriterCenter, au. But until next week, thanks for listening and we'll see you then. Bye.